All right, I want to say thank you to Joe Lynn Tillery. He's leading our singing today. Most of you probably already know him, but in, in case you haven't, this is his first time to lead singing on a Sunday morning for our congregation. I've really enjoyed it today, and I appreciate you leading the, uh, in our worship and our song service. So thank you to Joe Lynn. Look forward to having you up here more often. Uh, what, okay, I thought that was mine. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I may need it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. I want to invite you to turn in your Old Testament, 1 Kings 19, for the second week in a row. Let me give you a few reminders first before we jump into the text today. One reminder is that over the last two months, we've been uh, kind of kicking around this theme of anxiety. Anxiety is a very common problem, and so many people struggle with anxiety. So even if you don't struggle with anxiety, we've We've hit on different sub-themes that might help you in one way or another, but also we're looking at the intersection of anxiety and Scripture. So every single week, one of our lessons, even though we're talking about anxiety, it's rooted in Scripture. So that's what we've been studying the last two months. We wrapped that up today, and last week we started a mini-series within the series on Elijah. He's a prophet that you probably know. He has a disquieted soul here in 1 Kings chapter 19. We've been using this phrase, the disquieted soul, as a metaphor for anxiety. We borrow that phrase from the psalmist in Psalm 42. Now, a quick recap might be helpful on the text itself. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and they have this huge victory over the prophets of Baal. They triumph over the prophets of Baal. And God works powerfully through Elijah. And then you get to chapter 19, Jezebel puts a death threat on Elijah's life, and now he's running, he's afraid, he's running for his life, and then after he runs for a day into the wilderness, Elijah prays that he might die. Very sad verse. We talked last week about how he's depressed, he's anxious, he's emotionally exhausted, he's just flat out burned out. So he's at a very low point, and God meets him. God allows him to sleep and rest and recover, and God provides food for him through an angel. And that's where we pick up, where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in verse 8. So he got up and he ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So I'm going to ask you a question. And it's a simple question that you've probably been asked before, but do you prefer the mountains or the beach? Let's try it this way. I want you to say out loud on the count of three whether you prefer mountains or beach. Let's try it. One, two, three. Mountains. Y'all were a little more split than the first service, and you immediately focused back up here. The first, they started talking. It's like beach or mountain first service really was a trigger for them. So thank you for refocusing so quickly. It seemed like we were kind of split from what I just heard. I prefer the mountains if I had my choice. And this is, I just got an amen for that. That's, uh, thank you. So this is one of my favorite views in all the places that I've traveled. I, I don't know if you recognize this, but if you've ever been to Denver, Colorado, and you're leaving the city, headed west on the interstate towards the mountains, at some point on that trip, if it's a 
a day that's you know, not too cloudy or not stormy, you get this clear view of the Rocky Mountains, these snow-capped mountains. It's beautiful. Hey, y'all are from the Colorado. You know what I'm talking about, right? So you get this awesome view. I love it. The, the mountains are inviting. It's 120 degrees every day in June here. So I just want to go to that place. I want to go to the mountains. But I also realize that the mountains can be a dangerous place. As you drive into the mountains, you see signs that warn you for falling rocks. You, you can see that the mountains are very steep, and so you've got to be careful if you're driving in the mountains or if you're hiking because you don't want to fall off. If it's wintertime, you have to watch out for avalanches. If you're trying to summit a mountain and you get above the tree line and a storm rolls through, you could get struck by lightning. You could get altitude sickness. You could get lost. There's a lot of dangers in the mountain, in the mountains, and probably one of the most dangerous things, if you ever hike a mountain, are bears. I'm, well, wildlife, but specifically bears. I mentioned two months ago that we took a trip to the Smoky Mountains, and I took this picture outside of the bedroom window at the cabin we were staying in. If you notice, like I just barely opened the blinds to take the picture because I didn't want the bear to see me. It, it was very frightening, very scary, and it reminds me that you know the mountains can be filled with danger as well. I love the mountains, I feel invited by the mountains, but I don't think I would travel to the mountains alone. Or if at least I was hiking a mountain, I would want somebody with me that, that knows what they're doing. In verse 8, it says that Elijah, he's taking himself a little solo trip to the mountains. Not just any mountains, but the mountain of God. In verse 8, it's called Mount Horeb, but in Scripture... It's also known as Mount Sinai. And you've probably heard of Mount Sinai before because of Moses and the Ten Commandments, right? You're familiar with Mount Sinai. Well, Mount Sinai is also known as Mount Horeb. So there's something very special about this mountain that Elijah feels like he needs to go there. God met Moses there before, and he needs to go to Mount Sinai. Elijah takes himself a little sabbatical to this mountain, a solo trip. And he arrives, 40 days, 40 nights, that's another significant number in the Bible. In verse 9 it says, There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I like this question that God gives Elijah. Elijah's already pretty much said he wants to quit. He wants God to take his life. In verse 4, he's hitting rock bottom. And instead of reprimanding Elijah, instead of saying, how dare you ever doubt me after what I did for you on Mount Carmel, God just asks him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Just a question. And he's going to give him the opportunity to express his own feelings here. And he does that in verse 10. It says, He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I'm not sure what Elijah's voice sounded like as he said this to God, but many people speculate that he, you could probably read that in a monotone voice, a pouty voice. Regardless, he is very displeased in his circumstances. And he's venting. He's letting God know about that. And God allows him to do that. Much like the psalmists do all throughout the psalms. They just express to God what they're truly feeling. 
So God's going to show up to Elijah in a very unique and interesting way in verse 11 and 12. As the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. There's a lot of parallels to Moses here. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Hmm. So, wind, earthquake, and fire, those are powerful displays. There's a lot of power in all three of those. And I'll give you an example of the power of wind. I don't know if you remember, but last Saturday night, there was a, a strong storm came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, we were sitting at the kitchen table. We were playing some games. It was raining. It was thundering. It was lightning. And the wind was blowing hard. The trees were swirling. And all of a sudden, I hear my kids scream when we look out the window, and this happened. The wind took our trampoline and flipped it upside down. Like, just, just like that. And for our kids, it was very frightening. Like, what is happening outside? And that just is a reminder that, hey, wind is powerful. And when the wind picks up, it can flip trampolines upside down. It can tear rocks apart on mountains. And there's this wind that's tearing the rocks apart. There's an earthquake. There's a fire. It's all powerful displays. But the text tells us that God was not in those. It's strange. Why would God not be in these powerful displays? What is this all about? I put some other Scripture references up here because you can see at other times... Like in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 through 19, when God shows up to the Israelites in the wilderness in Mount Sinai, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's a violent shaking, there's fire, there's smoke, and the Lord was in all of that. But not here in 1 Kings 19. When God finally speaks to Job, in Job chapter 38, verse 1, He spoke to Job out of what? Does anybody remember? All right, you need to read Job again. He spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. We don't even know for sure what that means, but God showed up to Job in a powerful way, spoke to him out of the whirlwind. And then and the other reference I put up here is 1 Kings chapter 18. This is Mount Carmel. This is God showing up on behalf of Elijah and in the fire consumes those sacrifices. So fire, wind, earthquake, these powerful displays. But here... Here on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, Elijah experiences all three of those, but the Lord was not in it. Instead, the Lord was in the gentle whisper. I have looked up and I have studied and I have worked on pronouncing the three Hebrew words that are used there, and I'll do my, my best to pronounce it for you. Kol, Dimama, Dak. Those are the three words. So what does it mean? Well, you're reading an NIV, which... That's probably the preferred translation. It, it translates it a gentle whisper. So if you're familiar with the story, you're like, yeah, I like that gentle whisper. But then you read the ESV and it says a low whisper, a thin silence. The NRSV translates it the sound of sheer silence. A more updated, I guess common, modern translation is the common English Bible and they translate it, there was a sound, period, thin. Quiet. So you can see just comparison, just a few translations here. They all read a little different. 
It's hard to translate these Hebrew words exactly, but I think you get the gist. The Lord showed, well, there was, he, on this display in front of Elijah, earthquake, wind, fire, he's not in any of that. And then all of a sudden there's this silence, there's this gentle whisper. So it brings Elijah out of the cave in verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, for a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds with the same exact response that he had in verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Same answer. I don't know what Elijah has learned, but maybe it's not much of anything. So now it's time for the Lord to reframe Elijah's anxious thinking. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. So now the, the Lord will respond to Elijah yet another time on this mountain. And he's going to give him a task. This is what he says. Go back the way you came. We talked about that last week. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And then in verse 18 he says, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is interesting. So after the questions, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Getting the same response. He's rested. He's retreated with the Lord. He's seen the earthquake, the wind, and the fire. And then he's experienced God in the silence and the gentle whisper. Now God's telling him, you need to go back the way you came. We talked about that last week. To re-engage. Because I have more work for you to do. You're not done yet. I think Elijah thought, it's over. I retire. I quit. But here, the Lord is telling Elijah, you're not done yet. Uh, sometimes people retire and then they realize a little later on, maybe I wasn't quite ready to retire. The most recent example I can think of is Tom Brady. Uh, you know, he's one of the greatest football players of all time, and it seems like he's been playing for 40 years now. He was playing when I was in high school. And so every year, people, when's Tom Brady going to retire? Finally, this year, Press conference, big announcement, it's time to finally retire. Big news, and then a few months later, he comes back with uh, a change of my mind, I unretire, if you can do that. Now, I, we don't know why, maybe he went home and he rested for a few months and he cleared his mind up and he realized he didn't want to retire, or, as some people have said, he went home and had nothing to do and was with his kids and his family all day and he said, I'm going back to work. I'm not real, we don't really know why, but regardless... He retired and then he unretired. For Elijah here, he thought he was done. He thought he was done. But God said, I have more work for you to do. So that's 1 Kings chapter 1, I mean chapter 19, verse 1 through 18. We've looked at it two weeks in a row now. What do we learn from it? I gave you two key words last week: rest and re-engage. And I'll come back to those two words here in a second. Let me offer you three more words real quick. And then we're going to wrap up with a short presentation about uh, Mission Upreach in Honduras. So three words, three key words, I think, that are helpful for understanding this text 
And as followers of Jesus, uh, it kind of gives us some guidance on some things that we could put into practice. One of those words is retreat. Elijah takes a retreat. And not just any retreat, but it's a strategic retreat. He leaves the chaos of what his life had become. And he goes to this mountain to be alone with God. It's a strategic retreat. And if you think about this in military language, a retreat can be a wise tactic. It's not always a coward move. It doesn't always mean that you're giving up. It could mean that you just need to regroup. So, If you think in warfare language, if an, an army retreats, it could be because they need to stop and stop the bleeding for some of their soldiers. They need to heal the wounds. They, if the enemy is, making, is gaining momentum on them, well, maybe they can stop that momentum by taking a retreat and they get a panoramic view of everything that's going on and then it, they can re-strategize before they go back into battle. It's called a strategic retreat. Life is like a big battlefield. I mean, if you want to look at it like that, military-type language. We live our lives from our own perspectives on the front lines or in the trenches. And we have an enemy. As Ephesians 6 reminds us that we have this enemy... Satan and the dark forces of this evil world that are always on attack, maybe in ways that we don't fully comprehend. And through time, because of life and because of our enemy attacking, attacking us, we, we become wounded, we, we're scarred up, we're in the trenches, we're constantly fighting, and, and maybe we need to learn something from Elijah here that it might help to just take a little retreat, a retreat to be with God. Now, I think of retreat, obviously, because, as we've announced it several times, I'm getting ready to take a sabbatical. So for me, this is a strategic retreat, a time of rest that I've been blessed uh, that the elders have given to me and to Juan as well. We're going to go on an extended retreat to be with the Lord, kind of like Elijah does. But I realize that's not where you're at. You can't just go take a sabbatical right now. So what does it mean to retreat? Well, you could retreat every day. I think there's a daily application to this. You could retreat for 30 minutes a day, or maybe even 10 minutes a day, where you step away from the busyness of your life and just spend some time alone with God and God's Word. You might go on a half a day retreat, or maybe if your schedule allows it, you can go for a full day retreat. Maybe that's something God is inviting you into, like He does for Elijah here. Just take a little retreat to be with the Lord, and when you're on retreat, this disquieted soul that we a lot of us experience can start to quiet, calm down, gain some clarity. It doesn't mean that you can't hear from God in the normal parts of your life, but often we're so distracted and we're so busy, that even if God is communicating something to us, we don't have time to just sit and process it because we've got to move on to the next thing. So if you take a retreat with the Lord and maybe God is stirring something within you, it gives you a chance to sit with that without running on to the next thing. I've been reading this book by Ruth Haley Barton called Invitation to Retreat, and she has this quote in the book, and I, I didn't catch where, where it came from, but I love this quote. It says, I've lived too long where I'm reachable. I like that. We are, we are so plugged in all the time, all the time, and it's nice sometimes to just go somewhere where we're not reachable. 
you know, within reason. You don't want to ditch your family or anything like that. But to be at a place where only God can reach you. That's what Elijah does when he goes to Mount Horeb. And that's something that maybe God could be inviting you and I into as well, is to occasionally take a retreat with the Lord. The second key word is this word silence. You have the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. These are all powerful displays, but God was not in any of those. Why not? What well, could be that maybe God is trying to teach Elijah, and in doing so, he's teaching us that that's not God's only way of communicating. God doesn't just communicate through the big, powerful displays. As people of faith, I think we become addicted to those powerful moments, big emotional moments. You know, when I was a youth minister, it was like those times of church camps, mission trips, or Winterfest. Where you, like I talked about last week, those mountaintop experiences. And those are great. Those are graces from God that He gives us. But if we just wait for the next mountaintop experience, we're going to be missing that small, subtle voice of God at the other times. You know, we want to come to church, oh, the singing was great. Or, and I, I mentioned this in the first service. When you hear a sermon, uh, you want to be able to laugh. You want to cry, you want the preacher to tell you some story that's going to make you cry and make you think really hard. And then if you combine that with great singing, it's like, yes, the Lord was in this place. But what if, what if I don't make you laugh or cry? Does, is God still in this place? Yes. It doesn't always, I don't know why I just went off on that weird tangent. It's second service, I am like 10 minutes away from being on sabbatical, so that was kind of a weird uh, aside. I was praying about that this morning, not to get off on something weird. So anyways, my point is, do you only experience God in the mountaintop experience? Are you listening to God in the silence? Are you listening to that small, subtle voice of God that shows up to Elijah, not in the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire, but in that gentle whisper? And then the third key word is refrain. Elijah's thinking here is irrational. It's not very healthy. He's saying, I'm the only one left and everybody's trying to kill me. He's exaggerating the situation. And he's speaking in absolutes. Sometimes we do that. Anxiety can shrink our world and make us think that everything is terrible. And when we feel that way, we often find ourselves saying, well, everybody's out to get me. Nobody likes me. Everybody says this or that. And we speak like everybody, all, nobody. I never get a chance. We use these words like it's just an absolute, a superlative, you know, it's like, everybody's out to get me. You know, you can go on and on with the examples. That's what Elijah's doing here, is he's saying, I'm the only one left, and they're all trying to kill me. So what God does for Elijah, and it's called reframing, he reframes his situation for him. That anxious thinking. And in God's response in verse 15 through 18, he's basically telling Elijah, listen, it's okay. It's been over a month since Jezebel threatened to kill you the next day, and you're still alive. It's okay. Not everybody's out to get you. And guess what, Elijah? You think it's all up to you. You think you're the only one left, but I've reserved 7,000 people who have not bowed down to Baal. What Elijah learns from God's reframing here is he's not all alone. And it's going to be okay, and God's not done with him yet, and he's going to send him back out with more tasks to accomplish. So, over the last two weeks, we've looked at uh, 
all 18 verses, and I, last week I shared two key words, this week three key words, and I think these are all applicable to our lives in one way or another. So I popped all five words up here as we get ready to conclude this lesson. I just want you to look at these words for a second. And just think to yourself, what do you need right now? Is anything on here that Elijah experiences, according to my summary, resonate with you, stir something within you? Are you at a place in your life where maybe you just need to rest like Elijah does early on? Or maybe you need to take a little retreat with the Lord or build that into your regular routines. Maybe you need to sit in the silence and allow God to calm your soul. Maybe you need to reframe some of the anxious thinking that you've been struggling with. Or maybe you just need to re-engage. In fact, I think a lot of us probably need to find a way to re-engage. So what do you need right now? Where do you find yourself on this list? Is God communicating to you some way, inviting you into a time of rest or retreat or re-engagement? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. But I think if you're being honest with yourself and if you're listening to the impressions the Spirit gives to you, maybe you would find an answer there. And if we can help you with that, we're going to be available to you here in just a second. I pointed this out in the first service. I want to point it out again that sometimes people respond after the invitation song through a conversation private conversation, text message, email, you name it. And as was mentioned earlier, as I get ready to go to sabbatical, uh, I'm turning off the phone and email for a little over a month. So if you email me or text me and I don't respond, I'm not ignoring you. I kind of am, but I'm just not checking it. I'll maybe get back with you in August. I just wanted you to know that. But if you need somebody right now, let us talk to you. Let us pray with you. Let us tell you about Jesus. If we can help you, reach out to one of our elders. Let's stand and continue to sing. Kneel at the cross, Christ will meet you there. He intercedes for you.